Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to Midas Touch Legal AF. If it's Saturday, it is Legal AF Live. If it's Sunday, it is also Legal AF. It's Legal AF basically every day of the week. Ben Micellis and Michael Popak delivering and downloading you with the legal cases of the week, the key legal issues of the week, the key legal issues of our time in digestible ways that you can all understand legal AFers. We've got a lot to talk about this week. Michael Popak, welcome and great seeing you. Hey, you too, Ben. This is this this one I could not wait for you and I to record tonight. Just just so many great things for us to talk about, a lot of updates. But, you know, um, just as a, a heads up to you and to the uh, and to our followers and listeners, this is episode 51. This is our 51st podcast together doing Legal AF. We're coming up on our, our birthday soon. Wow, we didn't. I thought we should, we should have probably celebrated 50. That's usually a milestone. We kind of glossed right over 50. <laughs> but here at Legal AF, the milestone is 51. Congrats on hitting 51. Maybe at episode 107. Popak, we can also <laughs> celebrate maybe 211. We can just celebrate at the oddest of numbers. But I think as we reflect on this week's legal news, I think I want to talk a lot about temperament of a good lawyer because there are lots of ups and downs in the life of a trial lawyer. Um, and there are lots of ups and downs in legal news. And last week we reported on a lot of great, important developments in the various prosecutions of Trump. This week, we're going to be reporting on some developments that are not so good. Granted, there are some conflicting reports about the Manhattan District uh, Attorney Alvin Bragg and what he's doing or what he's not doing out of the district attorney's office. But later in the podcast, we're going to talk about how he lost his two top deputies, his two top prosecutors who were um, incredibly experienced, incredibly talented prosecutors who were leading the investigation. Mark Pomeranz and Carrie Dunn have left that prosecution. Alvin Bragg confirmed it. Um, the governor of New York, not too happy about these developments. Um, but we're going to talk about that later in the pod. But you know, you, you got to have the right temperament as a trial lawyer because the news is going to go up, it's down, you'll have big wins and you'll have losses. That's just the life of a trial lawyer. And I like to compare it to sometimes a Hall of Fame baseball player will bat 350, 400 is a great batting average for a Hall of Famer. I think a great trial lawyer's average is slightly higher than that because you have more ability to select the cases you pick as opposed to selecting the pitches that you get as a batter. But nonetheless, you're going to take your beatings as a trial lawyer. Oh, and I an think old, that, yeah, you know, there's an old adage this, about that. Sorry. Go ahead, Ben. 
And what's the adage? The old adage is if you haven't, and you and I are seasoned trial lawyers, I have over 30 in my career. If you haven't lost the trial, that means you haven't tried enough of them. It's absolutely true. And you have a lot of people who claim to be trial lawyers who, when you really break it down, they've just done depositions or they've sat at a trial. Um, but when you actually are in that arena, you're going to lose. It's just the nature of it. You can't control every aspect of these proceedings. And so that is true with the news as well. And we're going to break down what's going on um, with these prosecutions out of the Manhattan DA's office. But I think we would also be remiss, Popak, if at the top of the show, we didn't talk about what's happening in Ukraine. And we're not going to talk about it from a foreign expert, foreign policy perspective. You should listen to the Midas Touch Brothers podcast for that. Our podcast focused on Russia, such as Kremlin File, is a great source of information there. And of course, by following uh, um, you know, the, the Kiev daily Twitter feeds, and there's some just great news and great reporters out of there who I would suggest that you definitely follow. But from a legal lens, because as we see President Zelensky, his bravery, his courage out there, I think the contrast and the starker contrast is brought into picture of Donald Trump's initial impeachment extorting this individual and President Zelensky, who is going to be a hero that lives on for centuries as a hero. And this was the person who Donald Trump was extorting and telling that he was not going to give the Javelin missile system when the Javelin missiles are like the key critical thing that we see now in the defense of Ukraine. And that was one of the things that Donald Trump was saying he was not going to deliver and in fact held up while he demanded that Ukraine gin up a phony investigation into Joe Biden and and Hunter Biden. And all of Donald Trump's relationship with Putin, all of that to me is brought into stark contrast and the insurrection. Like why we do this show here is brought into stark contrast. And Popak, I think we see this very specifically as well in Judge Reggie Walton's sentencing. This week and Judge Reggie Walton sentenced one of the insurrectionists. It was that insurrectionist who was holding up the uh, 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 the, the podium. It was and the it's podium that, stealer. Yeah, he was the podium stealer. And he sentenced that individual to I think it was about 75 days. The guy's name was Adam Johnson. And Adam Johnson you know, said that he screwed up. He admitted fault. He admitted that he was wrong in the situation. Um, And I think he may have like dangled Pelosi's doorknob. Um, He didn't cause any damage, but he was in there making a fool of himself. And specifically what Judge Walton said was, quote, this is what we see in countries like what we're experiencing now in Ukraine, Judge Walton said. That's where we're headed if we don't do anything to stop it. Talking about Putin's invasion of Ukraine and everything that Putin is doing to delegitimize democracies. Yeah. Reggie Walton, by the way, is George W. Bush appointee, a, you know, a Republican appointee and very strong words about the insurrection, about those who inspire the insurrection and comparing them to Putin. Bush and George W. Bush and his father and Reagan appointees seem like a generation and a different party from those that are appointed by Trump. That just 
it just seems like it's a whole different party. But the profile and courage that you're that you're rightly pointing out about Zelensky and contrasting it to Trump goes even deeper. You've got we're in wartime right now. We're not at war. We haven't declared war, but we have a NATO adjacent country that we're very supportive of through various treaties and trading relationships and humanitarian reasons. It's under attack to be um, decapitated by by Russia. And what does Trump, former president, say and do during this time of, of potential war where you need to support the current occupant of the White House? He compliments Putin. He says Putin's a genius. Putin's uh, uh, he he just um, observes attributes in Putin that, of course, are anathema to everything else that thinking human beings and, and moral people see in his operation. You're not supposed to say those things during potential wartime. You're not supposed to be at odds with your president. And the profile and courage of Zelensky is is amazing by contrast. He's turned down an offer by the U.S. to evacuate him and his family. He, he, he is, he is going to be at the radio and at social media until the very end. And I'm hoping when this is all over, he's prevailed, we've supported him, and we make the Ukraine a member of NATO. And then we got another episode, we can talk about all sorts of things related to international treaties. And by the way, one day when you're ready, I have a, one of my partners is an expert in that region, former general counsel for the National Security Council for two administrations, and I think he'd, he'd bring some good focus. I th- I'll offer I'll offer his services to you and the brothers one day when you're ready. Oh, we should definitely have him on to uh, discuss. And, you know, the thing, too, is, is that, um, you know, Putin's strategy objectively was the opposite of brilliant. I mean, the Russian troops are taking on serious losses. Um, the initial days from the Russian perspective has been an utter failure. And the fact that you have Trump and you have these radical right extremist Republicans cheerleading Putin, even to a greater degree than RT, like even Putin's own propaganda people have to use Trump and his stooges because Trump and his stooges are more clowns than even Putin's own propaganda. So they have to actually use these clowns in America to sh- to 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 put you know to perpetuate Putin and give aid propaganda. and comfort to the enemy. I mean to give aid and comfort. This is something that my mother's generation, my father's generation, who grew up during World War II, would be aghast to see a former president critiquing a sitting president during a potential wartime. But the, the, this is the world that Trump has created. And when you have Elise Stefanik, who's the number three in the Republican leadership stand up and criticize Biden and, and by extension, uh, by by inverse proposition, compliment Putin. I mean, I, it, it's the, it is the world that they have created that you, your brothers and me, by extension, have to fight hard against that tide. That's not a world that's acceptable to to us. It's not a world that's acceptable to progressive Democrats. And we, sh- and we shouldn't. When I say it's not acceptable, we shouldn't accept it. That means exactly what it sounds like. I love when they throw when, when people throw that phrase around. Something's not acceptable. You've accepted it. The, to declare it unacceptable means you have to do something proactively to prevent it and to make sure it doesn't happen again. 
And that's why you ask, well, why are you talking about foreign policy <laughs> at the beginning of a legal podcast? Because it all relates to all of the cases that we're talking about, because whether we let use the label progressive, conservative, at the end of the day, we should all be pro-democracy, pro our judicial system, pro our constitution. And what Trump and what these radical right extremists have tried to do is destroy our institutions and to create in the United States a system that is akin to Putin's authoritarian regime in Russia. And that system, that fake tough guy bullshit, authoritarian Kim Jong-unish bullshit, history has shown that that is a utter failure. The reason that America has been this shining beacon across the world is because of our incredible constitution, because of our one of its kind, its first in history legal system and the way the checks and balances work here. That's why we talk about these issues each and every day on Legal AF, celebrating the good, the bad, the ugly, but ultimately our system and keeping these systems in check and keeping these systems in place. We're going to talk about a major update to our legal system in a little bit in this podcast, the nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson. We called it first on Midas Touch podcast like right. five weeks ago, whenever it was first announced that Biden uh, was going to have the opportunity right. to announce a Supreme Court justice. We called it. I said, I have, I said, Katanji Brown Jackson, you reiterated it. A few times, Popak, we will talk about that nomination. Well, let's be frank. I, I, you and I originally talked about C. Michelle Childs, and we thought because of Lindsey Graham supporting it. Then as a couple of weeks went on, you and I both looked at each other and said, you know what? Lindsey Graham pushing this this hard is actually a bad thing. Um, it's not a thing that, that Biden should embrace. And I also didn't think Clyberg, I thought he was hitting this note too hard to get uh, somebody from his home state of South Carolina on. And I flipped back and you flipped back to Katanji, which was our original. So we started with Katanji. Then we moved to Michelle Childs because we thought mm, maybe I that's think the, we said that we thought of least resistance. could be rise like like yeah. her stock was rising. I think I was stronger than that. I thought I would. I thought at one for one week in between the bookends of Katanji and Katanji, I thought Childs. And then I flipped back and I said, no, it's going to be Katanji Brown. And I want it to be, frankly. And we're going to talk about in this part of the segment when we hit it later this evening, why um, KBJ, my new favorite BJ, um, you know, instead of LBJ. Um, is perfect for this. And I love the fact she comes from Miami and she's got amazing roots. And there's a lot of firsts here, not just the first black woman that we're going to talk about when we talk about her her candidacy and, and why I'm very confident that she's going to be the next associate member of the Supreme Court. Also a first public defender, which I'm sure you're yeah. interesting. Just crazy. About. It's 230 years. She's the first per this. This is we'll just give the stats. We'll tease the stats that we'll get to her. First public defender, federal public defender, any public defender in the history of the Supreme Court, meaning she was representing um, uh, 
uh, people that are accused of crimes that could not afford their own representation. So deep inside the criminal justice system in a way that none of the sitting justices currently are. And she's only the second person on the current court who's ever been a trial judge. All the rest of them went from private practice or law school to the appeals court and skipped the day-to-day work of being a trial judge, seeing criminal, you know, uh, potential criminals, criminals, sentencing, civil cases. Her and Sotomayor are the only two that that had the experience of being a trial judge. That's all appeal courts do. They look at trial judge decisions or appeals court decisions. And and she brings that special that special background to that position to a perfect. I couldn't think of a more perfect pick and one that Lindsey Graham apparently hates. We'll talk more about it at the end. Yeah. Despite the fact that he voted to approve her. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now it's I love the quote. It's obvious that the radical left has co-opted the process. <laughs> the person you voted for. Right. The radical left. How about just any, can't you just for a moment, Republicans, stand back, honor a dignified selection of someone who came from a middle class background, fathers and uncles were police officers, father went to night school to go to law school at the University of Miami, a mother, public education, went to Harvard, got the right clerkship with Stephen Breyer, who she's replacing, editor of Harvard Law Review. Breyer, who she's replacing, she clerked for 20 years ago. She was a trial judge, a federal defender. She was on the U.S. Sentencing Commission. I mean, can't you just stand back and acknowledge and admire a body of work that that is actually better than any of the senators that are judging her? I'm sorry. She has a better, better, more accomplished body of work than any of the people that will be judging her to be to to vote and to be selected for that position. Yeah, and she was approved by pretty much a bipartisan yeah. vote before. So all these things that the Republicans are trying to gin up is completely baseless. But again, we'll talk a little bit more about her. But we we did a pretty de- good, decent deep dive into her just right now. But we'll talk about more about her at the end of the podcast. I want to delve into this other case, Popak. We've talked about it um, before on Legal AF. This is the case, a usual, unusual case of... Pamela Moses. Um, She was sentenced to six years in prison. I think it was like six years in a day or six years in a month. Um, But for trying to register, despite the fact that she had a felony conviction in 2015. Registered to vote. Circumstances of her felony conviction were very odd to begin with, too. So it seemed that she's been in these political crosshairs her entire life. She wanted to run for political office. Um, again, in 2020, and that's why in 2019, she was trying to figure out her voting registration status and um, and why it appears that she may have even been targeted for political purposes. But in this case, she went to her probation officer. She got a sign off from her probation officer that she was apparently eligible to vote, which the probation officer made a mistake, but nonetheless signed off on it. The prosecutor in this case that actually prosecuted her for this, someone named Amy Wyrick, her claim was that Pam tricked the probation officer into basically giving Pam the free and clear that she could be a voter and that she was free to continue about her day. She needed that piece of paper to register to vote, right? 
and so she got the piece of paper, but Amy Weirich said that was basically induced by fraud and they prosecuted her in Memphis and, and with a jury, There's with a, a jury, jury but with a jury trial. But now the, the guardian did some incredible reporting. Amazing. They brought this to light. Um, and as a result of the guardian reporting, I think the judge felt some heat and the judge admitted that the court, when they say the court, the meaning the judge <laughs> made mistakes in certain rulings, um, not allowing certain evidence yeah. to come in that well, should have come in. And Popak, tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, really, really one. I read the order. I read I read the whole order. So uh, you've done a very good job, as always, of giving the sort of how we got here with Pam Moses and now Judge uh, Mac Ward, who was the judge that presided over the jury trial in December, where the jury found her guilty because of the evidence was provided. Her team filed a motion for new trial. She's been sitting in jail since December while the new trial, she's not out while the new trial motion was being prepared and filed. And they filed it on five or six grounds. You only need one ground for the judge to find or an appellate court to find that you get an entire new trial. You know, we start all over again. We etch a sketch it and go back to the drawing board. You don't have to win at all five. She, she brought other arguments about, you know, testimony, that was that was um, excluded testimony that wasn't properly credited by the jury about whether she was guilty or innocent of this issue or whether she had the proper mental state, criminal mental state at the time. But the thing that actually the judge found out of the six grounds for a new trial, he only found one to be valid. All you need is one. But the one was based on the Guardian's reporting, which you and I have talked about in the past, because I do read it regularly. And, and uh, many of our topics sometimes come from reporting that The Guardian does. So an out of country uh, news agency based in the UK found evidence related to an email uh, exchange concerning the, the person that gave her that piece of paper, the probation person that gave her that piece of paper. And that evidence was presented to the judge. And the judge found that under the concept the concept of Brady material, B-R-A-D-Y, that you and I have talked about in the past in criminal cases, where the prosecution is obligated to turn over exculpatory things that can help you prove your innocence, exculpatory material, without being asked. It, anything that's designated Brady material has to be turned over in a timely fashion to allow the defense to put on a proper defense of their case. I mean, they have a right to that. And so the email the judge found was Brady material that should have been provided and believes that, that, that they were prejudiced as a result of not having it in time to use it at trial and has ordered a complete new trial. Now, I assume the prosecution, because I think you mentioned in the last podcast that we talked about it, for some reason, this prosec prosecution or prosecutor has been like hot for Moses and like wants to you know, make her career on this case. I assume she's going to file some sort of appeal. My gut is she'll lose and that and that there'll be a new trial for Pam Moses, who hopefully will avoid having to spend any more time in jail because she wanted to vote after her her term as she served her she served her time, you know, for a prior crime. And her right to vote should have been restored. She should have been allowed to vote. And at the very least, that shouldn't have been a new crime for which she had to be sentenced to jail. Popak, I think that's a good analysis. And just talking about the Brady rule that you mentioned, it's named after a case, Supreme Court case called Brady versus Maryland in 1963. 
And the ruling from that case requires prosecutors to disclose materially exculpatory evidence in the government's possession to the defense. A Brady material or evidence the prosecutor is required to disclose under this rules includes any evidence favorable to the accused, evidence that goes towards negating a defendant's guilt that would reduce a defendant's potential sentence or evidence going to the credibility of a witness. And if the prosecutor does not disclose material exculpatory evidence under this rule and prejudice has ensued, there could be a motion for new trial that's filed. A new trial can be granted. The case can ultimately be dismissed. In some cases, even egregious Brady violations can lead to the dismissal with prejudice, where a case gets totally dismissed because of outrageous government abuse. And even if the information is not requested, by the defense under a case called Kyles versus Whitley, you have to turn it over anyway. You know, right. it's the government's duty to turn that over as a constitutional right that defendants have. And so that is what is known as the Brady rule. Popak, what do you think is ultimately going to happen in the in the Moses case? I, I, I think with the new kind of scrutiny over it, the prosecutor is going to have to think twice about rebringing this case. I, I would I would think I think you're exactly right, except uh, I've done the reading as have you and you rightly pointed out at a prior pod that for some reason this prosecutor has a let's pardon my French has a hard on for Moses and wants to make a career out of it because I don't think you and I or any other sort of mature prosecutor exercising discretion would bring a case like this especially in this atmosphere but this one does and so I think she's got it in for Moses and I think she's just going to retry her case. She got a conviction. She probably feels, I'm guessing here, speculation based on experience, uh, that you know she's got a good case anyway. And even with that email, she'll be able to explain that away. And that's not going to be enough of a bombshell to change the direction uh, or, the, or to change the, the ultimate jury result. I think she brings it. I don't think she doesn't. If we were in a different state, a different time, and a different prosecutor, I think there would be a lesson learned here by the motion for retrial, but I don't think this prosecutor will learn it. Sunlight is often the best disinfectant for corruption, <laughs> and the Guardian's article bringing this up, though, has made an important uh, impact in the trajectory, and so kudos to the Guardian for that. Yep. Talking about sunlight being the best disinfectant, um, I think that relates to another legal development this week in a case involving the United States women's soccer team, which reached a $24 million settlement with the United States Soccer Federation. This case took a interesting um, direction because originally um, the district court out of California, judged by the name of Judge Klausner, who I've appeared before, um, who actually is a very well-respected judge in uh, in California. Um, part of the case was dismissed by Judge Klausner originally about a year and a half ago or two years ago when oral arguments were supposed to begin on March 7th before the Ninth Circuit, which is the Circuit Court of Appeals when cases get filed uh, in California. Um, Judge Klausner allowed working conditions claims 
um, to proceed. These were issues relating to charter flight discrimination, accommodation discrimination, playing surfaces discrimination. Um, those cases were able to proceed, but the equal portion, the equal pay portion was thrown out. And Klausner was a very long ruling, made a very technical ruling about the collective bargaining agreement and saying that the women's uh, had a separate collective bargaining agreement with the United States Soccer Federation than the men's. Uh, this is what was collectively bargained for. But what ended up happening in the case, going back to sunlight, is the best disinfectant was the head of the United States Soccer Federation made statements and authorized statements to be made in pleadings that said that the women's soccer team was inferior to the men's, that women were not as good of players, were not as exciting players, and really demeaned the abilities of women to compete competitively and professionally. And now the former head of the uh, United States Soccer Federation. As a result of of those arguments that were put into those pleadings, which that wasn't even the legal argument that they won on. It was just unnecessary cruelty and prejudice that was put in there. So he was removed. A new head was in place who was actually sympathetic, and they reached the settlement despite losing in the district court before the court was before yeah. the case was heard on appeals. So, a settlement yeah. was reached for twenty four million dollars. Yeah. So you got it exactly right. But let, let's go over it. So Carlos Cordero, who was the idiot, a former male male uh, head of the USSF, as you said, gratuitously made a filing in which he said, well, there's a reason women have disparate pay and don't have equal pay. They're not basically they're not as good as men and they're not as physically challenged as men. By the way, just to be clear, for those that don't follow this sport, the United States women's soccer team is the most successful soccer program male or female in the history of the United States and globally, the United States women's soccer team has won not one, not two, but four World Cups. The U.S. men's soccer team has won zero World Cups and last World Cup, they didn't even qualify to be in the World Cup tournament, let alone challenge for the World Cup. So we're talking about elite athletes who are who are more successful statistically, empirically, and by accolade than their male counterparts, yet they were being paid considerably less, being made to play in stadiums that were not up to world-class conditions as the men were. And the replacement that you alluded to is is Cindy Parlo-Cohn, who was a former woman soccer player and is the first woman in 107 years of the USSF to ever head that organization. So I am glad that even though they lost on a technicality with which what was going to be an appeal to Ninth Circuit on equal pay disparity, that is exactly the focus of the settlement led by Cindy Parlow Cohn on one side and the Women's Soccer League, Megan Rapino and the rest on the other. And they reached this, tw- it'll be $22 million as a money pot that's going to go to the current um, and I guess recent current uh, players uh, to give them more money to equalize their pay imbalance and their bonus imbalance with the men. And then two million that's going to be set aside for future scholarships and things related to sort of post career activities of these of these women um, as they move forward. A, a landmark settlement. You and I like to talk about these things. It's right in our in our in our wheelhouse, right in our alley when we're talking about gender discrimination, equal pay disparity. And, um, you know, there is no more 
there is no more acute example of equal pay disparity than the women's soccer team versus the men's soccer team. One is an elite world-class winner of cups and the other isn't. And the one that is, is the female team. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm glad the settlement happened. You know, Judge Klausner analysis, unfortunately, from a strictly legal perspective, was very critical of the collective bargaining agreement that was negotiated by the union and the lawyers for the women's national team. And basically saying, you actually negotiated this. And while I'm sympathetic to your cause and your claims, in his words, you can't now retroactively deem the collective bargaining agreement you just bargained for worse than the men's based on the fact that you entrusted your lawyers and your people to negotiate this for you. Um, uh, ultimately, though, this was the right outcome. To me, just because the CBA was negotiated that way still doesn't mean that the overall federation is permitted to be discriminatory in how it treats two different groups. Um, but this was the right outcome. And again, sunlight being a disinfectant for corruption when these pleadings, the, it was very telling what the true views were of the U.S. Soccer Federation through their legal work and their legal pleadings and how they even treated the women's team in their legal arguments, which had nothing to even do with where they won. On yeah, no, it's not, no, there's nothing there's nothing more egregious and ironic than mansplaining in your filings against the women's soccer team that's claiming that they have been discriminated against because of their gender. A lot of updates to discuss. We want to talk, Popak, about the uh, civil, the federal criminal civil rights cases against the murderers of Ahmed Arbery, uh, the police officers and co-conspirators um, in the murder of George Floyd, and talk through those. Before doing that, want to talk about uh, one of our sponsors on Legal AF, Express V. P N. So Popak, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes you may think that if you're in incognito mode, that that is actually hiding your search history and what you're looking for. Um, it actually isn't. And there may be times, especially as lawyers, where we're conducting research, whether it's for clients or whether we're actually engaged in kind of top secret, highly, highly confidential matters, you know, in our lines of work that you don't necessarily want a search history um, being accessible and being made available, um, you know, in, in very basic and, and easy ways. And it doesn't matter who your internet service provider is. ISPs in the US can legally sell your information to ad companies. And I don't want my info being sold to ad companies, Popak. That's like an, a big no for me. So ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. 
most of the time, I don't know about you, Popak, but when I've been using ExpressVPN, I don't even realize that it's on. It runs seamlessly in the background and is so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, and even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with VPN rated number one by Business Insider. Visit our exclusive link, at ExpressVPN, you expel that, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Legal AF. And get this, you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Legal AF. ExpressVPN.com slash Legal AF. Go there and learn more and don't let those advertisers ever see your search history ever again. And they're trying to harvest all of your data. And this is a good way to stop and prevent all those pesky advertisers from like trying to learn everything about you. I don't know about you. I don't want anything about me or on me harvested. (laughs) Exactly. So why don't we start Popak by talking about uh, the federal civil criminal trial against the murderers of Ahmed Arbery. Obviously, the individuals who were tried were convicted in the state case. There was a potential uh, uh, plea bargain, uh, plea agreement reached in the federal case before um, the family of Ahmed Arbery rejected any sort of plea agreement. They wanted that case to go to trial. Many legal observers, not us, but many legal observers thought that it may be a difficult trial to prove that the murders were racially motivated, despite the fact that these individuals had a racist history and made racist statements before and were white supremacist sympathizers before. Could you tie that to what specifically happened on the day of became a question that legal observers felt if you can reach a plea agreement and the individuals can confess and just admit to it, that would be a success. Um, But ultimately, the family rejected that. The family told the federal court they rejected it. The federal court rejected the plea agreement. It went to trial. And what happened, Popak? Yeah, and we talked about this case before. So just to bring everybody up to speed from where we started in the state court proceeding, Brunswick, Georgia, the jury convicted um, Travis McMichael, his father, Greg McMichael, and a neighbor, Roddy Bryant, of murdering Ahmed Arbery. And they were sentenced, the McMichaels were sentenced to life imprisonment without possibility of parole. And Roddy Bryan was sentenced um but, but has the ability to seek parole in about 50 years when he's 80 or 90 years old or whatever he's going to be. And um, they were going to start their sentence there, but um, and they're in jail um, already in, uh, in Georgia. And then the U.S., the, the Department of Justice, you know, Merrick Garland's Department of Justice went forward with a prosecution of them under civil rights violations. And the prosecutors we talked about in a prior podcast, you know, came to the spoke to the families and came to a recommended decision on a plea deal and and offered a plea deal of 30 years, additional 30 years. Remember, they're already sitting in life imprisonment um, over in the state court, but they would go first, apparently, in the federal court. 
and 30 years, um, or actually in the state court, and then they'd pick up their, if they were still alive, which they're not going to be, they would pick up with their federal sentence. And the judge and the victims and others said 30 years basically is not enough and rejected the plea deal and made them go to trial. And it looks like the Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office for Georgia did a, a masterful job in, as you said, connecting the dots between their racist uh, conduct in the past, including text messages, using the N-word, how they basically celebrated after they captured and killed and murdered Ahmed Arbery, how they celebrated that while they allowed him callously to die at their feet without trying to help him. Why they, they treated him as the prosecutor said in this, in this federal case, criminal case, they treated him like an animal that they hunted and captured and then celebrated over the carcass as if it were, they had bagged you know, some sort of game. And they, they then connected that to text messages that they were able to extract from two out of the three defendants' cell phones and personal devices. Apparently, one of them, Greg McMichael, had a, a um, device that the FBI couldn't crack and they couldn't get his text messages. And we'll talk about it in another pod about Fifth Amendment privilege and the ability, you know, do you have to turn over your password so that the FBI can crack it? But in executing the search warrant, they found all the other text messages. So the jury was was presented with, you know, screenshot after screenshot after screenshot of all of the uh, uh, racist, hate, hate, hateful racist language that these gentlemen used in private about black people, not about Ahmed Arbery per se, but about black people and people of color. And then they brought in live witnesses, people that worked with them, either in the military when they were in the military or at other jobs, where they said that they, they told bad racist jokes they made comments about black people. So by the time the jury was done because of the presentation of the evidence, they were like, yeah, these were racists that went after this guy. And if he was a white jogger who he would have just been sort of patted on the back for running through a neighborhood and waved at, maybe even given a cup of coffee. But because he was a black jogger, they decided they were going to hunt him down and literally kill him. And so they have now they haven't been sentenced yet. There'll be a sentence. The judge is giving them the right to file an appeal within the next two weeks. She's not going to let them out. They're already sitting in jail because of the first conviction. And then she's going to sentence them after a pretrial sentencing reports are prepared. So I, I assume they'll be sentenced the next 60 to 90 days on the federal side, which will be cumulative on top of the uh, sentencing they've already been subjected to on the state side. So in the case of the murder of Ahmed Arbery, you had the state case proceeded first, and then you had the federal civil rights criminal case. Um, now, moving over in the uh, into Minnesota, um, where we're talking about the uh, murder of George Floyd, um, the Minneapolis officers who were um, uh, with Derek Chauvin, Derek Chauvin was found guilty in the state court uh, proceeding. And then Derek Chauvin Popak also pled in the federal proceeding. Yeah, he pled guilty. So to avoid having a federal trial, he's already be serving a life sentence related to the his murder of George Floyd uh, by sitting on him for nine and a half minutes and squeezing the life out of him. And these were the fellow officers that were all involved from the moment that George Floyd was identified as a potential whatever, passing fake $20 bills in a convenience store and for which they gave him a death sentence 
you know, within 15 minutes later, all of the officers that were involved from the arrest or attempted arrest at the convenience store to Chauvin jumping on top of him and restraining him and crushing him to death uh, are all now being prosecuted. These are the three officers who were prosecuted now federally, as you said, they were not prosecuted state. That's going to come up next. So this one, it went federal first and the conviction we'll talk about. And then they're going to be tried again in state court the way Chauvin was. So there was the federal proceeding that um, resulted in the conviction of the three additional officers. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, because this is something I'm sure our our followers and listeners are wondering. Why? If they've already been convicted, what is the purpose in in a justice system, in a judicial system? What is the purpose of having somebody who's already been sentenced to life or worse imprisonment on a set of claims in, let's say, state court or federal court being prosecuted again for, you know, other crimes or other violations related to the same conduct. Why does this, why as a society do we do this? Well, if we're a society that demands accountability and we don't want our laws to be flouted, why else would we have these laws on the books? You know, if you don't utilize a clear and obvious example or the most egregious examples of federal civil rights violations resulting in the murder of individuals, then why do you even have these on the books in the first place? And I think as federal prosecutors, you have independent duties, you know, your duties may be aligned in many ways with the agendas and duties of state prosecutors, but it's like asking, hey, why should Trump be prosecuted from Georgia and New York and (laughs) the DOJ? Well, each, each entity is an independent entity. They have their own laws, they have their own rules, and they're following them. And we demand accountability under the law. Now, it wasn't a foregone conclusion, though, that, for example, in the Derek Chauvin um, situation with the other officers who were involved and sat there and watched it and didn't intervene, and in many ways were responsible for encouraging what took place by nature of their omissions and even some of their commissions. It's not a foregone conclusion that there is going to definitely be a guilty verdict in the state and a That's guilty right. verdict in federal. So you want to make sure that you're utilizing you know, the laws. And now those individuals who were just found guilty in federal, so just the quick summation, Popak, is that these individuals who the police officers who were with Derek Chauvin, who are responsible for the death of George Floyd. They've been found guilty in the federal criminal process. They now get tried in state court, right? Right, exactly. And I'll tell you what, exactly, you're exactly right. And what I found is interesting here, and I, you and I followed deeply and it, um, and really put a microscope on the Chauvin case. I, I Either I missed it or I forgot that the way that whole, the, the, the timing of events, the dominoes that led to the death of, of Chauvin started because two rookie officers, literally rookies, like their first year, which was Alice, Alex Kung, who is also black, and Tom uh, Lane, who is white, um, were called to investigate a suspected person passing fake $20 bills, which was George Floyd at the convenience store. The backup that arrived was more senior officers in the form of Chauvin, I think was a sergeant and two Tao, 
T O U T H A O, who's a Hmong American, and their arrival is what turned, you know, what basically a stop and frisk into a murder scene um, at the hands of more senior officers. And I and I I think it was a very breathtaking moment in the wrong way during the trial when when Tao was cross examined and said, "Why didn't you pull? Why didn't you pull Chauvin?" in nine and a half minutes off of Floyd, gasping for air and saying he can't breathe. And his response, again, demonstrating utter callousness, and I'm sure it resonated with the jury when they convicted him, was, I would think that a 13-year veteran would know what to do and I wouldn't have to intercede. That's the answer. That's the, that's the blue line answer that was given. And what's, what we hope from this, I mean, it's a hope, is that there'll be a change in national police uh, standard operating procedures, SOPs, so that there's better training, so that rookies and veterans never execute um, restraints this way to kill uh, and murder another person uh, at, at the scene of, a, of, a, of a, an alleged crime, that SOPs change as a result. What do you think, Ben? Are SOPs going to change nationally? You know, I hope they do. And I hope that in small ways, we could be a part of that change. And to that end, this week, um, when I'm not doing Legal AF with you, Popak, in my other job as general <laughs> counsel of Colin Kaepernick's Know Your Rights Camp, we announced a very important program, how we want to help and try to make a difference in this area. And so we launched what's called an autopsy initiative, where we're giving families who have lost loved ones to police-related deaths to have a second free autopsy that will pay for 100%, will pay for the travel, the transportation, the forensic pathologist's fee, which could be expensive. Sometimes these second autopsies can cost five to $10,000 and in some cases more. But we're going to fully fund um, all of those initiatives. One of the issues that came up in the George Floyd, you may recall the George Floyd murder trial, uh, the, the murder trial of George Floyd, there were two autopsy reports, one by a private medical examiner that was commissioned by Floyd's family and another by the Hennepin County Medical Examiner, which ultimately reached the same conclusion that Floyd died of homicide. But the medical examiner from the county coroner highlighted fentanyl intoxication as a as a factor relating to Floyd's death on cross-examination, the medical examiner was just completely ripped apart um, because that had nothing to do with the underlying cause of death. But you have a bias that is frequently injected into cases involving the deaths caused by police officers, um, you know, in situations like George Floyd and in other situations. I personally uh, had experienced this a lot when I litigated cases in Bakersfield and Fresno and I would represent families in wrongful death cases against the Kern County sheriffs. In Kern County, the coroner is the sheriff. They have the same position. The sheriff is their own coroner. And so they would prepare these reports. And in one case that I you know, recall very vividly, the death was a pulmonary embolism that was caused by the police canine unit. They released their dog on an individual who was complying 
the dog bit my client's leg and that caused the pulmonary embolism and they died a few days later. And the report uh, talked about um, resisting arrest as a cause of death. The autopsy report talked about drug use as a cause of death. And none of those were causes of death. The, the cause of death was the dog bit his leg and it caused the right. pulmonary embolism and died. Right. Dog so, bit his leg in the carotid artery. So the, um, so the short of it is, Popak, is I hope that the standard operating procedures change. But I did want to highlight that's an initiative that we're working on to try to make a difference in situations like this in in bringing accountability and bringing truth well, and, and, and shedding a spotlight. Yeah, on so we're right back to where we started. It, it don't we want our listeners and followers to be energetic and muscular in their resistance to things that are going on around us that we don't like that are not consistent with our democratic ideals don't use the phrase that's unacceptable that is the least of the things that you can do you basically have accepted it if you're at the point of saying it's unacceptable do something about it I mean, the, the Kaepernick Initiative is an amazing, amazing development and one of many that he that I know you and he have done and will continue to do it. But others have to pick up the torch and do things large and small to contribute to this. You know, this is a huge boulder that has to be chipped away at in order to be successful. So listening to the podcasts, yes, <laughs> we think it's important and it arms you with information to be able to debate in a dignified way with your friends and neighbors and hopefully change their minds or at least understand what's going on around us, but you have to do more. And, and that's an example of doing more. Yeah. And, you know, in, in other kind of very difficult developments, I mean, looking at what's going on in Oklahoma right now, Oklahoma, their legislature is, has a bill that's working its way through, um, their legislature, which looks like it's going to pass, they would ban abortions after 31 days. And so we see across the country, the Mississippi law, which is the subject of the Supreme Court case, Dobbs versus Mississippi, that oral argument was heard a few months back. We expect to get a ruling by the Supreme Court, whether or not the 15-week ban on abortion uh, that Mississippi instituted uh, is constitutional. The short answer is it's not constitutional under Roe v. Wade and its progeny, um, but is the Supreme Court going to uphold the 15-week ban? And many fear, and I fear, um, that if they were to uphold the 15-week ban, it almost seems like that's a foregone conclusion based on the questioning that that is what they are going to do. Deeper fears are, are they going to completely overturn Roe v. Wade in general and make this up to the states to enact any legislation? So if you look, for example, even at Texas SB8, it has an automatic provision in it. That's the bounty hunter law, which allows individuals to sue each other, you know, for anyone who aids and abets an abortion. But even that SB8 law has an automatic provision that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, that abortions would be banned consistent with the with the new law. And you see states in Florida um, and other radical right bastions, pretty much every radical right state now is rushing to do abortion bans that look like Mississippi. But here we have Oklahoma doing a 31 day ban, um, which 
at some point, Popak, the state's just going to totally ban it. But uh, for all intents and purposes, a 31 day ban is a ban and any ban is an absolute ban. And any restriction that is a government intrusion onto the constitutional right of privacy, the constitutional right to an abortion that women have and childbearing persons have is completely disgusting. It reflects uh, a a complete just heinous view of male hegemony over childbearing persons and women that should serve no place for our government to inject themselves in those decisions that women childbearing persons, their faith, their doctors, their family that they make. This we're watching. Yeah, Ben, that that was um, poignant and sad <laughs> in in the accuracy of what you just said. We are watching, ladies and gentlemen, a race to the immoral and unconstitutional bottom and states like Texas and Oklahoma and the like are racing to see who can outdo each other for taking away a woman's right to choose bodily autonomy. And we're seeing it now writ large. This is the very Pandora's box that Kagan and Sotomayor warned about when SB8 was allowed to stay on the books while they, while they in leisurely fashion, decided the constitutional issue in the summer, um, we think, in Dobbs versus Mississippi. This is the uh, license that the U.S. Supreme Court has allowed for states almost like a child testing the limits of their parents' authority. Can I do this? Can I put my hand on the stove? So Texas does six weeks. Mississippi does 15 weeks. Oklahoma says, oh, we'll one-up you. We'll do 30 days. 30 days from when a woman's last menstrual cycle. That is the only time, that's the only window of time that she can get an abortion if she knows she's pregnant, of course. Um, and And the statistics that have been put out by Planned Parenthood and others is that the average woman does not know that she's pregnant, Ben, until five and one half weeks after her, her last menstruation. So if you don't know you're pregnant on average until five and one half weeks, how does a 30 day rule, how is that an abortion right at all? And to your point, which you made eloquently, it isn't. It means it's a ban on abortion. And why this is even more dastardly and more immoral is that what state sits at the border of Texas, Oklahoma. And so all of the people in Texas that have now been denied their fundamental right, constitutional right to an abortion and have no other choice, go across the border to Oklahoma. And what does Oklahoma do? Have they have they done Um, Have they taken refuge for these people? Have they given them sanctuary? Have they allowed them to exercise their constitutional right? They said, no, we're going to close the border completely and we're going to make it a 30 day rule. Thank you very much, Texas women uh, and Oklahoma women. Goodbye. And uh, it's just um, it's exactly the dystopian future that you and I uh, predicted, not with any joy, but with just um, uh, cold, sober acknowledgement when the Supreme Court did what it did by not enjoining SB8 in Texas. And and, uh, it just bodes terribly for what's going to happen in the summer when they likely at least roll everything back to the 15 weeks in Mississippi. Um, And we go from there. So that's where we are.
Yeah, and as you're there in Oklahoma, you look at what the radical right extremists are doing with book banning and in uh, the House of Representatives in Florida, um, the don't say gay bill outlawing any discussion about LGBTQ plus issues, um, pretty much in all schools at all ages, you know, it, it purports to have an age uh, requirement of when you can't talk about it, but then it also says, or any other years as may be deemed to be unreasonable or inappropriate, which just expands the, you know, the, the language of the statute such that you can no longer discuss LGBTQ plus issues. Now, the law hasn't been signed yet by yeah. the governor, but it's on its way. The vote Thursday was 69 to 47 um, was the vote in favor of this don't say gay bill. And again, going back to the top of our show, Popak, when I talked about the Russia-Ukraine crisis, you know who has don't say gay bills? People like Vladimir Putin, people who are trying to portray this uh, anachronistic view of masculinity that presents masculinity as hating and destroying any other. And that is an incredibly problematic view for a host of reasons, including its abject failure in history to create peaceful, thriving societies. And when you have these wannabe fake strong men like DeSantis and Trump and what we have in Oklahoma, I mean, it's just it's sickening to see these bills making its way through, which is why, as you said, just saying it's unacceptable is not enough. I mean, for me, when it was unacceptable, we created Midas Touch. For you, when it was unacceptable, we started talking about these issues and delving into it and putting our time and our reputations, you know, and you know, and everything we have on the line. And, you know, when it comes to changing issues about the problems with autopsies, create the autopsy program. If it doesn't exist, don't say, oh, one doesn't exist. What do I do? Create it. Just create the program and, and, and make be the change. And here, just saying it's unacceptable is not enough. You have to show up to school board meetings. You have to run for local offices. You have to write letters. You have to call members of Congress and call Senate. You have to take to the streets and peacefully protest these issues and let your voices be heard. Yeah. The, it reminds me of the line we talked about in the past. It was used by one of the judges in uh, the Jan 6 sentencings. You know, Benjamin Franklin, when asked, what kind of government, uh, Mr. Franklin, do we have? And he said, we have a republic if we can keep it. And there's just it, the fact that we are throwing away the crown jewel of our democracy, which are its institutions, its constitution, its democratic ideals, and we're and we're throwing it away, and instead looking to, as you said, oligarchies and fascist regimes that have austerity know, measures that are failing, right. right? And we and we look at them with envy, as you said at the top of the show. We're the beacon on the hill. We're it's our democratic society that people gravitate to and want to be like and why we want to morph ourselves into some strongman authoritarian regime. I guess it's, is it just 
I don't know. I'm just asking. This is rhetorical. Is it just easier for people to give up and just let a fascist president make all the decisions for you and cheer on like you're at a NASCAR rally? Is it just easier? Is that is democracy? Ben, I'm asking. Now it's not rhetorical. Is democracy hard? Is is it hard every morning for to support the republic and to be a, a lover of democracy? So people are fatigued and they've just given up and said, "I want other people to make decisions for me. I want to. I want to act like I'm in the Roman Colosseum, thumbs up or a thumbs down for my neighbor." Is that what it is? It's just hard. I think it's slightly more complicated than that. And I think that we can, I think we could, I, I, I think we could probably write volumes and volumes and volumes of books delving into it. But I do think it is one factor that it is hard to have truthful, fair, complicated discussions about the nuance of what's going on. I think it is exacerbated by technology, by all the stimuli that people now encounter in a given day, including untruthful disinfo sources. I think that paramount on the issue is ultimately tribalism, is racism. And when democracy doesn't work for tribalism and racism, um, then the tribalists and racists will try to create structures that look like apartheid and that are apartheid in place of the democratic institutions. The democratic institutions, when the when they're elected and they could still be in power under the system, is a complicated system they can live with. But when they're out of power, and they, you know, they being, you know, the Trumpists, the radical right extremists, see the writing on the wall that under a democracy, even though the prosperity of the United States of America will be so much greater, even though our country is headed in a far better direction, if we have this diverse, incredibly, um, uh, yeah, incredibly diverse United States of America, they would rather have austerity measures for 90% of the United States, similar to Russia, where an oligarchy style, small minority of white Americans and their enablers have the power, even if the country is not doing well. That's, that's ultimately what I, they're willing to, to do. But I, I, anyway, it, it's a more I, well, complicated- on that, note, on, on that note, just to make it a little more lighthearted, I posted on my Twitter feed, a video of a rat infested set of garbage in front of a national coffee chain that was near my apartment, which got a lot of um, publicity, including that chain reaching out to me and calling me about how to, how they could fix that problem. And I had a friend that I know who's over in Russia or in or Belarus write a comment when I posted that to social media and said, oh, we don't have that problem here in our country. And she's, she lives in a dictatorship. You know, um, Lukashenko, who runs Belarus, is Putin's right hand, and it's basically an extension of Russia. And to which I commented back to her, because I have to be careful, because her social media is, if, not from my perspective, I have to be careful for her, because her social media is reviewed by, by, their, uh, by their police. And I just wrote, that may be, you may not have the rats out in front of your coffee shop, but we in America have a few more things that you don't have. And I just put dot, dot, dot. And, and I want that to always be the case. 
I want us to be different and have a differentiating uh, set of principles and values than those um, in countries that were part of the Soviet Union or are in Curtin. And look, you know, you think about what a lot of the legislation also is that the radical right extremists want to do. They want the government to control social media, right? That's what we saw DeSantis, the type of legislation he wanted. That's the type of legislation that Abbott wants. That's the type of legislation that Trump wants. And you ask, well, why do they want that? Why do they want that? Well, look what's going on in Russia. And the dichotomy again, and this is why it all relates to to the law, Ukraine being a free and open society, their ability to communicate and to be nimble and to get truthful videos out right now in a time of war is in deep contrast to an isolated dictator in Putin who can't communicate effectively and openly and honestly with his troops. A lot of the ability to rally behind Ukraine and for Ukraine to get these messages out is they have an open society and they have people who are able to post on social media and have this exchange of data. But strong arm anti-democratic leaders like Putin and like DeSantis, I put DeSantis in the same category as Vladimir Putin. I put Trump and Putin in the same category. I put Abbott and Trump in the same category. Um, Trump and Putin in the same category, even people like Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, if you're going to sit there with Herschel Walker under a photograph of Donald Trump, who doesn't even look like Donald Trump, like wearing his blazer, you can't then say you're strong against Putin. If you have Trump's mural behind you in a set photograph where you're trying to promote an insurrectionist candidate, you're not anti-Putin. You are pro-Putin in that propaganda. In any event, we got a lot more to talk about. We want to talk about Alvin Bragg, and I want to talk about uh, Katanji Brown Jackson's nomination. But first, this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is my favorite. You all know that by now. I always say the proof is in the video. Go back four months, five months. Just actually look at what I looked like four or five months ago. I was worried about you then. And then I started taking, thanks, Popeye. Then I started taking athletic greens and it really changed my life because it wasn't like I wasn't doing anything back then, but I was doing my own gummies and my own vitamin pills. I thought it was working, but clearly it wasn't doing what it needed to do. And I started feeling tired and lethargic, but with one tasty scoop of athletic greens and their AG1, it contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multi-mineral, probiotic green superfood blend and more in one convenient daily serving. This special blend of high quality bioavailable ingredients in a scoop of AG1 work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, support energy and focus, aid with gut health and digestion, and support a healthy immune system, effectively replacing multiple products or pills with one healthy and delicious drink. And as research changes, so does AG1. And while most nutritional products just remain stagnant and don't involve, Athletic Greens has already made 53 improvements 
over the last decade and counting with incredible third-party testing. This is lifestyle friendly. So whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no tasty chemicals or artificial anything while keeping it tasting good. Join the movement of athletes, life leads, moms, dads, rookies, first timers, everyone in between. And of course, legal AFers and take ownership of your daily health by focusing on nutritional products you really need in the simplest manner possible. That's essential nutrition for AG1. I get my AG1 powder. I do one scoop. I put it in my bottle. I put some water in there. I shake it up. I drink it. I have all the energy I need for today. And I'll tell you this, all the legal AFers who have tried this product, all the Midas Mighty who have tried this product are raving about it and saying this is changing their life like it did with me. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune supporting free one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just you have to visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF today. So go and visit Athletic Greens dot com slash legal af a t h l e t i c g r e e n s dot com slash legal af take control of your health and give a g one a try popak could you break down what's going on with alvin bragg i know you and kfa the show by the way is doing great uh Karen Friedman, Our Wednesday Netflix, show, Michael yeah. Popak, the Wednesday yeah. show. Everybody check out Legal AF Wednesdays with Popak and Karen Friedman Agnifilo. Karen's was Cy Vance's number two uh, at the Manhattan DA's office, and she hosts this uh, show with Popak. So obviously she's going to have incredible insight into what's going on. And there are some things that she can't obviously talk about because she's literally too close to the action where she's not allowed to talk about certain things. But Popak, you are allowed to talk about it. Break down the <laughs> Alvin Bragg situation and what's going uh, on there. I don't know. If, I don't know if you're around, but we jumped on a we did a, we did a new thing that's going to be a regular feature for Legal AF, including you and me on Legal AF. We did a Twitter spaces with like a 20 minute countdown and we jumped on and 24,000 listeners and followers joined us and listened to Karen and I break down in real time, I think within an hour of the news hitting that as you alluded to in the earlier in tonight's podcast, the two lead prosecutors that were responsible for the Trump investigation and prosecution and Alvin Bragg's Manhattan DA's office resigned in protest and sort of a noisy departure uh, which is quite unusual, just to give everybody some sort of perspective. That's not supposed to happen. That doesn't happen. And if it happens, it happens in private. It doesn't happen with sort of a, a, a noisy uh, departure where they say the reason that they are departing is because Alvin Bragg is not is getting cold feet over the Trump organization prosecution and the Trump or uh, the Trump personnel, including Donald Trump and his children their prosecution being led by the Manhattan DA's office. To remind everyone, there's a joint investigation going on. You've got Letitia James at the New York Attorney General level, at the state level, doing a civil investigation, pardon me, which she's doing, she's making tremendous progress. But they share information with the prosecutor's office in the Manhattan DA's office, and Alvin Bragg, who took over for Cy Vance, who started the investigation and started the, the grand jury process, um, you know, and he renewed the grand jury for another six months, 
has has to make the the decision whether to con to continue with the case or not. And these two pro prosecutors, Carrie Dunn, who's a, a man, and Mark Pomerantz, Pomerantz, a very well known uh, uh, private lawyer, both private lawyers that were deputized for this position, who came in specifically for the last year and a half to do this, um, left. Now, all of the immediate media speculation and even our own professional speculation on the space. Uh, Twitter event that we did with Karen was that um, this indicates that that um, Alvin is not going to continue with the prosecution. He's going to pull the plug completely. And uh, that and that that's it. That was a death knell for the Trump investigation. And it was a very sad evening for most of us that didn't want that to happen. Of course, we're not privy to all of the evidence that's being developed at the grand jury level. You know, I know other people like our fellow podcaster, Michael Cohen, is like, I've seen the evidence and, you know, he should continue with the prosecution. It's a good case. Well, with all due respect, he hasn't seen all the evidence because it's in a it's in a private confidential grand jury process. The only one who's seen all the evidence are the prosecutors and their boss, who's Alvin Bragg. Now, I think Cohen was saying, though, that he literally saw the he was the lawyer there. So he knows the document. Well, he no, no, he knows that the guy did bad things and should be prosecuted. But in terms of how the evidence is being developed, I think he's that none of us really know that. Now, no. let me explain something we've never talked about on legal AF. In most states, including the state of New York, the even though we elect the district attorney or the county attorney, if you're in a county who's the prosecutor for, for the cases, the governor ultimately has the power, I think, in almost every state to replace for malfeasance or for other or for other bad conduct or other conduct or other reasons can replace any counties or cities attorney, uh, district attorney or prosecutor or and or reassign cases if she finds or he finds that the prosecutor is not doing their job. And so there is a boss, an ultimate boss, uh, even above the duty dutifully elected um prosecutor, and that is the governor and the governor of New York, my state, uh, uh, Hochul, who is running, who was the, was the lieutenant governor who replaced Cuomo and is running for re-election or election as for a full four-year term, was interviewed um, just two days ago by a local paper. And she said she is having a meeting with Alvin Bragg, who's had a couple of missteps since he's been in office his first day memo, which he issued upon his his being put into the into the office, I think on January two, he took a lot of heat for the first day memo where he said he wasn't going to prosecute at all certain low level, in his view, nonviolent crime, including things related to the police. That pissed off everybody in New York, including the the new mayor, and I think ultimately the governor. So that was bad. And now this two very public. Uh, uh, a quit, you know, prosecutors quitting because they believe that that Alvin Bragg isn't dedicated to the case of prosecuting Trump. So the governor sent out her first sort of shot across the bow. She she let it be known in an interview that she's aware of the issue, that she's going to be meeting with Mr. Bragg about the issue. And when they asked her, are you aware of your powers to replace or replace the, the elected uh, prosecutor or reassign the cases, her response to the reporter was, I am well aware of my powers. I mean, that's a very like uh, your boss, your boss has asked, hey, do you know you can fire Ben and Michael? And the boss just responds, I am well aware of my powers. So Alvin Bragg apparently got the wake up call that things were not going well for him because it was just reported yesterday that he has not, in fact, got
gotten cold feet over the prosecution and that he is reassigning the prosecution to his uh, to one of his division heads um, within his office and that she will inherit the entire group of 20 veteran prosecutors and investigators and they'll continue on with the Trump case. I think this is a great example of of the media and shows like ours shining that sunshine that you like to talk about on an issue. And let's be frank, Alvin Bragg getting the signal from his governor that he could be removed or replaced on this on this prosecution. And then the next day he announces, hey, I've got an idea. I'm going to bring in a new prosecutor. So, Ben, what do you think? This is a big fuck up. Um, (laughs) I agree. This is a big fuck up because (laughs) when you uh, if you're a managing partner of a law firm, if you're a partner at a law firm, if you are the president of an organization, if you're a coach of a football team or a coach of a baseball team, you have to know, I, I keep giving more analogies. Um, you have to know who your superstars are. Okay. If you are the coach of Lakers and LeBron James is leaving your team, that's a big problem. Okay. And Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn are the LeBron James of the, of this prosecution and whatever division head that Alvin Bragg is going to assign this to, he had superstars. You don't lose your superstars. And not only are they your superstars, you're lucky to have these superstars who left private practice to join for this specific purpose. And so when you lost the confidence of them, to me, that's a big problem. Now, I'm sure there's a dutiful division head or person that's working there who now has to kind of catch up to speed. But Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn were doing a lot of work. Um, This was taking place for a long period of time for them to leave. And the way they did, they're obviously because of their position, they're not going to say why they did. There'll be leaks to the press, which we heard about, um, you know, why they were unhappy about leaving. But they wouldn't leave both of them at the same time unless they thought that this was being entirely mishandled. And it is a big problem because, you know, I do agree with Michael Cohen, the lawyer who did draft these documents and who's intimately familiar with these documents. He's aware that there was unlawful criminal conduct taking place, you know, and and again, there's lots of conspiracies floating out there. Alvin Bragg must have been bought off or Alvin Bragg, this or that. And you know what I think? I just don't think there are people who are meant for the moment. Okay. There are people who were meant for the moment, the same way Zelensky is meant for the moment. There are times in your legal career that you're meant for the moment. Katanji Brown Jackson is meant for this moment to be a Supreme Court justice. Alvin Bragg, I hate to say it, but he's probably just not meant for this moment. This is overwhelming to him. He probably can do a lot of great work out there, but being the district attorney of Manhattan is probably not the job for him. He can't handle this job. I I think that's what it comes down to. I agree with you. I've used the phrase when I was doing hiring at a very high profile, high intensity um, company, I, I would use it in hiring. I would say, look, High pressure either creates diamonds or dust, right? Bright lights, really hot, bright lights. You either shine in them or you melt under them. And I think we're watching it with Alvin, unfortunately, and he's got a tremendous reputation, but totally. he is but he is not, this is not ready for primetime player here. 
Um, you know, you, he's only been, it, it seems like a lifetime, but he's only been in since January. And either one of these would be career suicide. And he's done it now twice in, three, in two months. And he's unable. And as a lawyer, you have to defend yourself. Like right. you have to be out there and be willing, like the, you have to be able to defend others. But at the base level, you have to go out there and instill confidence. And he's not instilling confidence. No. I mean, we'll see, you know, and I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. And I hope 10 legal AFs from now we go, oh, we were wrong about Alvin Bragg because he does have an incredible reputation. But this may not be the no. gig for. And, and and something that I'll cover with with um, within the limits of her abilities of, of, of being formerly in that office. But I want to I want to hear a little bit from uh, KFA, Mike, our co-host on Wednesdays about Susan Hofinger. I'm sure she worked with, who's a career prosecutor in the office, who is now the Trump prosecutor under Alvin Bragg as part of his leadership team. I'd like to, I won't get into the specifics of the case because we know that um, the KFA worked on the case and was supervisory over the case. But I would like to hear more about what she thinks about Susan Hofinger um, uh, and her ability to do this job. You have to do the blink twice if you think this method and see if that works. I want to talk about Katanji Brown Jackson nominee to the United States Supreme Court. I, I want to hear your that. views about <laughs> Katanji Brown Jackson, who is definitely meant for this moment. And before doing that, just want to tell you all about Calibrate. This podcast is brought to you by Calibrate. Look, it's not a surprise to you that my, well, maybe it's a surprise to you if you don't really know me well, but I go up and down and wait. Um, and that's always been kind of my life story. Like I could be like super fit or super not fit sometimes is, I guess, a generous way of putting it. Um, but I always don't like the gimmicks and the quick fixes. I need to always try to make commitments like long-term commitments if I really want to make my weight loss journey successful. And Calibrate's been able to do that for me. It's a year-long commitment that gives you the tools to fight your biology because traditional diets don't always work. Calibrate works though, because they combine doctor prescribed FDA approved medication paired with lifestyle changes to improve metabolic health. This is a comprehensive, fully integrated program combining classes and get this Popak, this is what I love about it. One-on-one -on -one video coaching, in-app tracking, and a community of members like you, plus medical care, including a video doctor visit and Calibrate's earliest members lost an average of 14% of their body weight, exceeding the 10% average weight loss results seen in clinical trials. Your weight doesn't reflect your willpower. Get back in control with Calibrate. Get $50 off the one-year metabolic reset. Use the promo code LEGALAF. Go to joincalibrate.com. That's the website. Go to joincalibrate, J-O-I-N-C-A-L-I-B-R-A-T-E.com. And that's $50 off when you use the code LEGALAF at joincalibrate.com. Again, this is not a diet. This program is designed for you to achieve metabolic health and treat the underlying biology that contributes to weight and contributes to weight loss. And when you start your Calibrate journey, this is what I love, you're going to find a team 
that's with you every step of the way and be supportive of you in that weight loss journey. So again, go to joincalibrate.com and use the code legal AF. Popak, I'm just going to say these three names, Katanji, Brown, Jackson, first, middle, last name. Tell me about her. Love her. Tell me what you think about this selection by Biden. Love her. Love her. K-B-J. I don't know if that's what she goes by, but she's going to be going by it really soon. Everybody likes those initials after Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, I love everything about her. I love I loved her background. Um, I love how she's already consensus building. When I was in Miami last week, as everybody knows, Popak after dark as the as the sun went down in my Miami office um, alleyway, I was I was doing the podcast from. But I did run into a lot of my friends who were part of the Cuban American Bar Association, which is a very powerful bar association in Miami, Caba. And they they wrote a very poignant uh, support letter for her uh, because of her Miami background, because of her her racial background and diversity that she would bring to the court. They got behind her and and um, I, I was proud to see that, that Miami as a community, which is diverse in itself, got really behind her in a way that, you know, I don't think the others, myself, Michelle Childs had her backers and didn't really hear much about Leandra. And then ad campaigns that are now being committed to her. I think there's some other uh, social media uh, progressive entities that are going to be running a m- millions of dollars of ads in favor of her to make sure that she gets in. Um, I like the fact that she... Uh, went to public school in Miami and comes from a humble background, parents, public servants and police officers already. The Fraternal Order of Police National have supported her, uh, which their last time they did an endorsement, it was for Donald Trump. So she's already bringing together because of her background as a federal public defender, the first public defender to ever be on the U.S. Supreme Court in 230 years. The second um, black person and first black woman, the first black person. I know I don't, I don't, sometimes I think I don't have to say these things, but I have been with adults who don't know what's going on in the Supreme Court the way you and I do or don't remember. Thurgood Marshall, 1967, was the first black person to ever be on the US Supreme Court. Clarence Thomas II, and now we have the first woman. I like all of the things about her. I like the fact that she is the second only of the nine who served as a trial judge, having been appointed by Obama. Then Biden elevated her to what you and I have referred to in the past as the feeder program for the U.S. Supreme Court. That's where if you're a president, you have an ability to put somebody uh, at the D.C. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit you, you stash them there for training. It's almost like a leadership or judicial academy because if you have the ability during your tenure to elevate somebody, you're going to look there first. That's where Merrick Garland would have come out of to be a Supreme Court justice. That's where um, others on the bench have come from. And so he put her there, I think, to put her in line for the first choice once he made it. And so she was confirmed, as you said, not with the numbers that you and I expected from 20 and 30 years ago where Supreme Court justices were confirmed 95 to one or 95 zero, but she was confirmed with five or six Republicans who have crossed the aisle and voted in favor of her to confirm her the first time, including Lindsey Graham. Now, I wanna 
lower the temperature of some of our Democrats with all the backbiting and cannibalism that happens within our party with, yeah, but what about Kristen Cinema and what about Joe Manchin? And they'll jump ship and they'll, no, they won't. Um, there is not one judicial nominee, and you and I have talked about in the past, how efficient um, Joe Biden has been to get his judicial appointments and judicial nominees uh, confirmed in record time at every level of the trial court. Now he's moving on to the court of appeal, to the appellate court. Cinema and Mansion have voted for every one of Biden's nominees. So don't worry about any kind of leakage from the Democratic side. And I think, and I want to hear your opinion, Ben, I think she picks up a couple of people from the Republican side and it will be a bipartisan um, in that way. It will be bipartisan. The other thing I love about her is that she's the only person that will be sitting on that on that bench that knows the nitty gritty of the criminal justice system. So much of what the Supreme Court does is Yes, of course, constitutional, but it, it goes to liberty and innocence and guilt and what will be a crime and not be a crime and how someone will be sentenced and racial disparity disparity in sentencing. And she's the only one that served on the Federal Sentencing Commission, developing the federal sentencing guidelines, and the only one that's been a federal, a federal public defender. And that is a viewpoint that has been sorely lacking on that bench and now will be solved by the addition of K KBJ. But what really has to happen quickly is that she's got to get her sea legs. You know, it's not going to be the first day. It's not going to be the first round of arguments. She's got to find ways to build consensus behind the scenes at the judicial conferences held by the Supreme Court members at the in writing opinions and getting opinions assigned to her so that she turns six to three votes against progressive democratic ideals into five to four or even greater in favor. And that's what Breyer was masterful at doing when he held kind of the center for a long period of time before these new people came on. And we have to see that. Otherwise, it's just a replacement for Breyer. And we keep losing six to three. She has to find a way in a way that even Kagan and Sotomayor have not been able to do and to try to bring a vote or two over with her in order to get five to four or greater decisions in our favor. I hate to be the cynic here, okay. Popak, after Somebody has that to inspirational. I know. Uh, I'm happy about it. Encouraging. Um, I let me go through each point. Uh, you you were thinking. Do I think that the there's going to be a bipartisan vote confirming her? Uh, no. Uh, my prediction is is that people who actually voted her from the court of appeals like Lindsey Graham, are not going to vote for her for the Supreme Court. You won't get one Republican vote? That's your prediction? I think she may get two. All right, then that's bipartisan. Okay, I think she may get one or two, but I, I don't think she will get more votes than she did previously. Oh, I agree with that. Okay. You and I, I think she will get less votes now, even though she's a consensus builder and should get more votes based on the fact that she's... Uh, proven herself as a judge on the D.C. circuit, and she's brought together these various factions. But nonetheless, um, uh, they're going to start ginning up and making up all these kind of BS, fake propaganda type of stories against her. So I think that's going to happen when she's on the bench. She's not going to be able to change the minds of the radical right extremists. And you're just going to get six, three and five, four votes. I would love for that to be different, but 
we need there to be other um, nominations <laughs> and we need to make sure that we have uh, democratic, big D, democratic leadership in the executive branch. The president needs to be a Democrat so that we can make sure that we appoint small d, democracy-loving judges who can actually be Supreme Court justices. That is what I'm looking for. And so to me, it's not even about progressive ideals anymore. You know, while I'm progressive, while my views line up as a liberal, if you were to go down the views that I espouse, to me, it is a, it is a binary decision. There is a political party and there are people in this country, a faction that loves democracy, that wants America to be this diverse beacon of light and hope for the rest of the world and supports democratic institutions. Within my big tent, small D democracy group, we can have debates on a lot of issues. Debate tax policy. We can debate the role of the IRS. We could debate student loans. We could have debates. But the threshold is democracy. You against the insurrection. Do you support America as uh, a diverse beacon of light in the world? Do we support our allies? And do we support people? Do we want to make healthcare a universal human right and education a universal and human right in the United States of America? That is the faction that I'm with. And those are the types of judges and justices that we're going to be appointed. And the other faction is the pro-Putin, to take this episode back full circle, the pro-Putin authoritarian loving oligarchical uh, individuals like DeSantis, Trump, Abbott, those cronies, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who want to turn the United States into Belarus, who want to turn the United States into Russia, a Putin-led Russia. We're not going to let that happen. You're not going to let that happen. That is why we do these legal AFs every week. That is why we discuss these key issues. That is why we fight for our democracy and you fight for democracy in any and all ways that you can. I want to give a special thanks to all of our sponsors on today's uh, podcast. I want to thank Athletic Greens. I want to thank Calibrate. I want to thank ExpressVPN. Use those codes Midas to get and unlock the discounts that uh, we've talked about in those ad reads. And as we always say, Popak and I are practicing lawyers. So if you have a case, the cases that we usually take involve like very, very serious traumatic injuries, like sexual assault, sexual trauma, sexual harassment cases. Um, in employment settings, wrongful termination cases, large business disputes. Those are the types of cases that we take and we're happy to evaluate your case. Um, if you want to send an email to me, ben at midastouch.com, ben at midastouch.com and Popok is mpopok, M-P-O-P-O-K at zplaw.com. Send us an email if you have any cases. Our uh, hearts and prayers and actions that we can take are sent to the people of Ukraine uh, on this weekend. We created a video at Midas Touch, Defeat Putin, um, which I know is now not only getting millions of views here, but is also spreading across lots of Ukrainian message boards uh, in various uh, Ukrainian apps. Um, we're trying to convert the language also into Russian so that we can get the message out there 
as well. Spread that defeat Putin video and Popak. Always a pleasure sharing. Yeah, you too. Weekends. I've yeah. I'm sorry, I have a any, personal. Any, any, any closing yeah. words, Popak? Yeah, I got a personal relationship to that one. As people know, my relationship is from Belarus. She's American citizen, but um, and her family is really trapped in 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 Belarus on the border of of Ukraine. And uh, so we live it and talk about it every day. And um, can't we can't thank you and your brothers enough for the, the the comfort and the social media powerhouse that you're putting behind these things. We think on this show that people know what we're talking about, but I can't tell you how many people in normal walking America don't think about these issues and 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 our and our targets of misinformation campaigns on Facebook and another social media platforms. And so you're getting the truth out and shining a light on it the way that we've talked about it today. And I want to thank you and your brothers for doing that. Thank you, Popak. Appreciate all the support from the Legal AFers, all the support from the Midas Mighty. If it's Saturday, it is Legal AF Live. If it's Sunday, it is Legal AF. It's Legal AF now every day of the week. Thank you for joining us here at Legal AF University. Shout out to the Midas Mighty.